the Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you The Meat of the Word Q&A with Martin Salbretti, Vice President of the Chalcedon Foundation. Join Martin as he conducts regular Q&A sessions on topics of interest to Christians serious about their faith. These Q&A sessions will continue to cover an ever-widening range of topics, all with an eye to honoring the command to let all things be done unto edification. live here broadcasting from Georgetown, Texas. This is Martin Sabretti and I am the Vice President of the Chalcedon Foundation and we are here for another edition, edition 55, of Chalcedon's Q&A and Little Meat of the Word. So we're going to start off with a, um, a remembrance of Buddy Hansen who passed away on September uh, 17th. And uh, if you don't know who he is, we, uh, I'll ask Ground Control to go ahead and post the little memorial piece that we prepared for him earlier this week, uh, because he was what we would call the coach of Christian Reconstruction. No one had a more practical sense than he did. Uh, he was the one who uh, was the nuts and bolts application guy when it comes to Christian Reconstruction. And so he made it his business throughout the years to take the faith and to drill it into the minds and hearts and the actions of God's people. Hey, Glenn, good to have you here today. So um, we had uh, corresponded back in 2007 and earlier uh, because he was looking to uh, publish some books. Now, most of the books that he did were all published through his own Hanson Publishing Group uh, out of Tuscaloosa, Alabama. He was uh, really big in the professional and college sports arena in his past, and that's kind of uh, what prepared him, as I say, for what was to follow because he knew what it took to uh, read the defense, if you will, and see how we're going to deal with that. In other words, again, the practical concerns were always at the level of tactics and strategy. And for him, that was tantamount. And he realized that the modern Christian was very, very poorly equipped for all of this. Uh, and Christian Reconstructionists had all the zeal in the world but didn't know how to apply it. So he told me, uh, you know, you guys have the water, you provide the water, but we people don't know how to drink it and can lead the horse to water but what's going to make him drink it so his position was we need to also encourage folks to the how-to the practical side of it so in a sense he and I would um, be opposite poles I'm more of the theoretical guy and he's the more of the application guy you need both because he said we need you guys to give the, lead the way and then I'll figure out how to apply it and get people walking in the way so uh, not everybody has everything in one package. The body's not all eye or all ear, because therefore you wouldn't be able to see or uh, hear if, uh, with the other sense missing. So he provided the missing sense that often, uh, almost in both senses of the word there, <laughs> because he was, he was a no-nonsense fellow. And uh, he made it his business up through the 76 years that he was here to see to it that God's will be done on earth as is in heaven. In fact, uh, when he wrote his commentary on Isaiah, he made it very clear that what he was talking about was that these were God-given insights how to live life on earth uh, for practical insights. So he saw all the practical sides of Isaiah. Most people saw the theoretical or the worship or the spiritual, and he was able to see there's more to it than that. So he helped broaden our horizons in dealing with the Word of God. So he brought Reconstruction and Theonomy uh, a very necessary emphasis. So when you see uh, pastors like Paul Michael Raymond uh, doing both very well, 
he has a piece of Buddy Henson in him. In fact, they were uh, co collaborating toward the end uh, on various projects because they had a common heart for apl application, for seeing that the people of God were uh, not just um, having intellectual exercises that seemed satisfactory or doing great worship, but rather that they were walking according to the way uh, and that they had ways to confront evil toe-to-toe, -to -toe, how to advance the kingdom of God where it mattered, where the rubber hit the road, as we say. So by all means, if you're not familiar with the writings of uh, Buddy, uh, you want to become familiar with them. And they will uh, soon be digitized and available on Kindle. Um, that effort is not going to happen overnight, and it's not Cal Seaton's doing it. We might have a small hand in it that depends on, on where that effort goes. But they're worthwhile resources, and if you don't know them, uh, they're good. In fact, it's not often that I hand a book to someone else who I think needs to have benefit of that book. And I've handed out several of Buddy's books, which is high praise for me anyway, <laughs> because uh, I would be very picky and say, well, what does this individual need to understand his, why he has got a humanistic outset despite naming the name of Christ and what he needs to do about it? You hand him maybe the deprogramming book or the, the 52 reads, uh, and then uh, those texts will then guide him. By the way, one other work of his that I mention, uh, because it's important, is that he had noticed that after 500 years, no one had really written a response worthy of the name to uh, Niccolo Machiavelli's book, The Prince. We talk about Machiavellian politics, Machiavellian ethics, things like this. It's all about um, the winner-takes-all mentality, survival of the fittest, kind of a social Darwinism approach to things. It's the book that says it's okay for the rulers to lie because their mission uh, does not need the people to be in on it. <clears throat> in fact, it's probably favorable for the people to be left in the dark, just be the unwashed masses. And so Buddy's thought, no, no one's really doing a toe-to-toe -to -toe counter to Machiavelli. So he wrote The Christian Prince as uh, and pitting that <clears throat> against the work by Machiavelli. And he said he didn't understand why no one Christian had gone to that before, but he was really willing to step into the gap and take care of this material. Highly recommended also the Christian prince because he knew that uh, high-level corporate America, they read Machiavelli. Uh, even coaches read Machiavelli. Uh, military men read Machiavelli. And so they're getting a very humanistic, anti-Christian perspective. He says, why don't we provide an alternative? And he looked around and no one provided the alternative. He said, I'll do it, Lord. I'll take care of the, the mission. I also mentioned in passing, which is uh, interesting, that he was a raf born Raphael Andrew Hansen III. I looked at the U.S. Census for 1940 and found out that there was two Raphael uh, Hansons in the world at that point in time, his grandfather and his father. His grandfather was born in 1893, approximately, and his father was 22 years old at the time of the 1940 census, and Buddy would be born the year after. And he made a, a point telling me that his name meant something to him. Uh, Raphael, he was named after Raphael Semmes, S-E-M-M-E-S, a captain of the uh, CSS Alabama, which was, you might call it a pirate vessel of the Confederacy, uh, but they sank more Yankee warships than anybody, and uh, if they had had 12 such ships running with 12 such captains, perhaps that war would have gone a little differently than it did. So uh, it's interesting that the same situation can apply to Buddy, in a sense. Because back then, the Confederacy had no uh, knowledge that naval theaters were important, so they neglected it. They just had the one ship, and that was good enough. And all these tremendous victories 
that were gained by Semmes on this high seas were simply due to Semmes himself, Captain Raphael Semmes, and had nothing to do with the Confederacy, who was paying no attention to this important area. Same thing, too. Modern evangelicalism is not doing the job either. It's not paying attention to all these theaters of engagement, but Buddy was, and so Buddy would, like I said, storm the field alone. We need more Buddy Hansons today, not less. So the fact that we've lost one last week is a cause for us to be concerned who will raise up the next generation of Buddy Hansons, who's going to carry that torch. That torch desperately needs to be carried, and uh, his works will follow him. The promise of a revelation will follow for Buddy. So find his materials on Amazon if you can, and if you don't know his works, uh, acquire them and study them and Haikal. And it's good for us to be aware of them and share them. Like I said, it's one of the few authors that I would then buy a copy and hand it to someone because I knew they needed to have that particular perspective that only Buddy Hansen would bring to things. Now we'll get to the Q&A session proper. And again, I don't know if uh, Ground Control uh, posted the um, memorial piece for Calcedon, but if they have, fine. If they haven't, I'm sure they will, now that I've repeated myself on that point. <laughs> I think this question came in uh, Sunday, just before we went to press. Um, or actually came in on Monday. Keeping in mind that the Bible tells us what we need to know, there are questions that come up that might seem trivial, but people have them anyway. Of course, this is the question of, uh, the is this a Deuteronomy 29.29 scenario? where it says, the uh, secret things belong to the Most High God, but the things that are revealed are given to the sons of man, to understand, to plumb, to, to grasp. And so the question is, maybe this inquiry here falls in that line of something that might be a hidden thing. But it's interesting, men's curiosity gets the better of us, and so we pose these questions. So his first question, were animals carnivorous prior to the fall, and did bacteria and viruses exist? If so, should we take death to only mean death of human beings as a result of the fall? Now, uh, Ground Control could put up the link to Rush Dooney's book on commentary on Galatians and Romans. You open up the link, and if you happen to own the hard copy, grab that too. Uh, pull up Rush Dooney on Romans 8, verses 19 to 23, where I think you'll find the answer. Essentially, the text reads in Romans, this is from the King James, but I'm going to change the word creature to creation so it makes more sense to modern ears. For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the creation, waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creation was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope. Because the creation itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of our body. So Rush Dooney, following Calvin and others, indicate that this is a, thank you, ground control, this is a worldwide um, change that is going to happen toward the end of the age. Uh, the, the notion of groaning uh, means to stretch forward the neck. In other words, the, the, there's a, this deep expectation from the created realm. And according to Calvin, this includes not only uh, the animal creation, but even to the mineral creation, which is also subjected to futility, to vanity, to corruption, to corrosion, to rust, if you will, to decay, uh, to all the things that cause things to fall apart. So it's also being squared away, and the, so it's going to be a reversal of the curse. And we get an indication of this reversal in Isaiah 11, 
where it appears that the lion's going to and the bear and these things that are normally are carnivorous, or at least the bear's omnivorous, but the lion is certainly a carnivorous creature, um, will, will eat straw like the ox and things like that. So there's a promise about a reversal of the curse. They shall neither hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, the script, scripture says. For the knowledge of the Lord shall cover the earth as the waters cover the sea, Isaiah 11, 9. So in conjunction with Romans 8, we see that the entire creation was subjected. Now, when was the creation subjected to futility, to vanity, to this nature-ridden tooth and claw scenario? It says, not for its own sake, not because nature did anything wrong, not because the animals sinned, but be for man's sake. But it was subjected in hope because God was going to overturn it. So it is oppressed with the intention that God's going to remove that oppression. See, the, God, the, uh, the land itself uh, suffers from the sins that are committed upon it. It receives, say, the blood of the first murderer. Uh, when, when Abel is, uh, dies, we see that, that God says that the earth, the earth, the land is calling, the blood, his blood is calling me from the ground where it was spilled. So it pollutes the land, it defiles the land to have this. So the creation has a response. There's even a, a dialogue between the beam and the uh, um, foundations of a house calling to each other that this house was built with, on blood. I believe that might be in Hosea, one of the other passages in these minor prophets. Also to the point that uh, the creation responds to man's sin. Uh, it, uh, and that's the kind of futility. So when the domain of sin is pushed back, then the creation responds accordingly. So if they're not going to hurt or um, destroy all the holy mountain, it means that if this is to be read in a literal sense, which is certainly a legitimate way to look at it, barring other considerations, uh, that perhaps vegetarian has a future. It doesn't have a future today because to that would mean you're trying to bring in by force the uh, Isaiah 11 thing with sinful people, and you can't get there from here. Or the God's conversion is what, and regeneration precedes. It's when the knowledge of the Lord covers the water, uh, the earth as the water covers the sea, that we have the curse being rolled back. And uh, passages in Isaiah 65, 17 following talk about the lifespans of human beings extending again. So... <clears throat> There's a very reason to believe that animals were not carnivorous, that there was no such futility and vanity, that they did, in fact, originally eat, um, um, they were vegetarians, if you were herbivores, even the lion and the ox, because God's going to then restore them to the condition they were at the creation, which was not befouled by sin. Everything was good at the time, as uh, Genesis 1 and 131 being witness, God declares everything good. And so death enters the world through man, and death passes through to the... In fact, it was necessary for God to kill some animals to provide the uh, clothing for Anna, uh, Adam and Eve to cover their nakedness. Uh, in fact, that um, dovetails with the second question of this individual. Now, as far as uh, bacteria and viruses, to the extent that bacteria would be used to break down food items and would have been present potentially in the um, prior to the fall, they would then obviously still potentially be a part. Uh, and I'm, again, this is one of those a Deuteronomy 29-29 scenario. We don't have exact, clear definitions, but we have inferences. Now, inferences are dangerous because you can make all sorts of false claims on an inference. We even have heard the phrase used of late, galloping inferentialism, where if this leads to this, leads to this, leads to this, then you finally are ten steps removed from your actual facts, and yet you're elevating this uh, inference of an inference of an inference to the status of hard dogma. 
and Rushton has even written an article which appears in, originally appeared in the Ritz Reconstruction from the Chalcedon Report, and now can be found in, in, in Informed Faith called Inferences. It's in the index and there's a whole article dedicated to the dangers of churchmen using inference as a means for reasoning. Uh, because to the law and the testimony, they speak not according to these, it's because there's no light in them. So you can raise up an inference, as did the Sadducees when they challenged Christ, that was false and wrong, to the extent that Jesus would say, ye do err not knowing the power of God nor the scriptures. So, same thing here. So the second part of the question, arising from this um, sent-in question, in Romans, St. Paul contrasts the first Adam and the second Adam. Without changing any of the necessary theology, can we say with certainty that Adam is of the elect and along with Eve is in heaven? Is that even a proper question? Well, it's a proper question, maybe not. And can you say with certainty? No. But are there reasons to believe this is the case? Yes. The reason, primary reason is that God provided a covering for both of them. He provided clothes for Adam and Eve. Uh, and that cost God the death of some of the animals to make that a possibility. So that indicates, uh, at least there's some presumption there in favor of that God was providing for their needs. Plus the Protevangelium, the so-called first gospel about uh, the seed of the woman crushing the head of the seed of the serpent, is delivered to both of them, to Adam and Eve. Uh, and so they both had that promise prior to the first murder, one of their sons killing another. So they had yet to see the full extent of their uh, fall, but the provision for it to reverse the fall was already in motion and delivered to both of them when they were the only two hearing it. So uh, we could argue, not conclusively, but we can argue with some presumption that raises the presumption, like they say, that they were saved insofar as that God had already provided a covering for them, that there was an atonement for them made, a covering um, and yes, it was just simply clothes, but it was not clothes made from linen. It was clothes made from skins of an animal that God had killed and then formed the clothes for them. So the entire covering was God-made. And that's the essence of salvation in the first place, that what Christ secured for us on the cross is entirely God-originated, God-created, and God-delivered, and God-consummated. So, in any event, I think that's probably the last of the very, very, that's um, the word I would use, hypothetical questions that arose. The rest are a little bit more practical that came in across the week. There it is. Uh, we see that, uh, and if you look for the index of the third volume, you'll find inferences and the chapter in the volume to look up what God, uh, what Rushton had to say about the pluses and minuses of inferences. There's nothing wrong with them per se, but we abuse them and we overuse them and we put too much weight upon that and then all of a sudden we are um, speaking one thing and God speaks another, all because we had too much faith in our reasoning powers and rationality, and that's what inference involves. There's a right and a wrong way to use an inference. Jesus used them properly. Uh, when he confronted the Sadducees, he actually used another inference, but his was, so was based on Scripture and anchored to Scripture and didn't deviate from Scripture, and so he had every reason to use what he had to say. When he said that uh, of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, he says, God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he's the God of the living, not of the dead. So that, those two facts have the stringency of a syllogism, as they say. It is a hard logic, and Jesus employs it. So it's more than just an inference when, in Jesus' hands. Okay, good. Uh, thank you, Ground Control, for that. Okay, following on, I have one, two, 
three, four, five questions. Since paying property tax is unbiblical, let's wind that back a step. Since property tax imposition is unbiblical, what he's saying is paying it. Because paying it is the problem, then that's that'd be a different story. So let's let's but let's finish the question too, so we can see what the questioner is actually asking. Since paying property tax is unbiblical, do you recommend I conclude a letter with my payment that I am paying under protest because the state has no God-given authority to tax his property? If so, what should I say? Uh, so I do believe that the protest makes sense. There, I was just uh, speaking with someone else recently uh, about Ezekiel 3, where uh, if we do not warn somebody of the, with their actions, then, of course, he said, uh, they will die in their sins, but their blood will be on your head for not warning them. So this is the uh, application in Ezekiel of a claim made back in Leviticus 19. You shall not hate your neighbor in your heart. You shall anywise warn him or rebuke him, warn him that he is uh, transgressing the law of God and therefore are going to suffer for that. And if you and you have to assume maybe he doesn't see it, so I'm going to tell him. You don't have to nag him, but you have to tell him once. That's adequate in God's economy. They're warned. And once you've warned somebody and told them, then he says, uh, if they do die in their sins, you, their blood is not on you because you've warned them. So in this sense, it probably makes sense to tell them this is, you do not have this authority and I'm doing this unto the Lord, uh, despite the fact that you're violating God's law by securing it. So uh, now people put some very interesting things in their tax returns all the time. And the Babylon Bee had a hilarious one where uh, <coughs> someone had scrawled an imprecatory psalm in huge letters and a marker over at uh, 140 form, you know, may, there, may they go down to Sheol alive, underscored three times. Well, we don't have to uh, necessarily uh, cast imprecations that intensely at them. And that's going to come to another question about sovereignty, the book Sovereignty by Rashtuni. When I get to the last question, we'll take this question up again about bureaucratic uh, suits and what they're doing and what their motive is. Well, because the question was raised about the chapter called labeled Theocracy that occurs in Rashtuni's book Sovereignty. Also, he uh, asked, you know, QAs seem very, very quiet when they are picked up. The volume of the broadcast is lower than other Reconstructionist radio broadcasts. Is it possible to speak closer to the mic or record it at a higher volume? If I spoke close enough to the mic that you could increase the volume, uh, I can't control the volume on the iPhone, then I will, you'll probably be seeing my nostrils and not me. Uh, and that creates issues, too. Perhaps the crew of Re uh, Reconstructionist radio can normalize my uh, broadcast and bring the volume up. I know they usually do tune in, and they probably will catch this, and if they can modify that, they will do so. Or I can yell and get hoarse, and that's the other option. And I will uh, do that if I have to. This was an interesting question. It, it um, came off of uh, as a result of our discussion of gleaning last week. I work as a director of a very popular food service that has a Christian influence and holds to Christian values. Something that has come to my attention is the amount of food we waste. Because we aim to serve the highest quality of food, we often throw away or discard food after a certain amount of time once it's been prepared. Our owner does not want us to keep food for ourselves or to give away to other employees or customers. I imagine for health reasons or legal reasons, liability, right? So I want to know what the law of God has to say about waste and if it's wrong for us to throw away so much food. Also, would it be proper to give away the food anyway, despite our owner's rules, because it would be a service to employees who are poor or needy and it would be trash anyway? Question mark. Please share any insider instruction. Well, that's an interesting point. <coughs> What's interesting about gleaning is that the quality of the material that was gleaned was equivalent to that of the harvested stuff. You know, they, 
You weren't going to tell someone you can't enter the field until everything's rotten before you can pick it. No, they had the right to go in. You can pick it prematurely if they so choo, chose to do. Uh, but that was to be set aside. There was a set aside, and it was a set aside of fresh material, if you will. Now, it behooved the gleaner to arrive before those things rotted on the vine or were consumed by wild beasts and things that could make it much more hard or difficult to, to get your gleaning done and have a suitable haul. But the point is that it was, in fact, not secondhand food. Now, food wastage is a big problem in America, first world problem, as we say, <laughs> which reflects badly on us because we should be more innovative. Uh, at the very least, that food then should be composted and therefore provide for the next uh, uh, harvests in the fields. But if that's not the case and it's simply being thrown away, this is unfortunate. Notice what happened when Jesus fed the multitudes. What did they do? They gathered up everything that was left over. They, there was no such thing as waste. Uh, and there certainly wasn't any waste because of the amount of baskets of uh, leftovers that they had, which were then to be provided for the poor. But it was within the span of the uh, uh, actual operation. So after the feeding, the uh, acquisition of the leftovers was imminent. It was right away. It was not a couple of days later when everything had rotted. And they didn't have refrigeration back then. So it seems to me that if you factor in refrigeration, you might have additional time in which to provide for the poor uh, from this material that would otherwise be thrown away, but would be perfectly healthy. Now, that's the other thing. It can't be rotten. It can't be, you know, we're going to soak this in um, uh, formaldehyde so that it'll hide the fact that the meat is rotten kind of situation. That it was not what God had in mind by any stretch of the imagination. So that would be abusive to do that. But to the extent that it is uh, legal, uh, uh, it would be ethical to go ahead and proceed with this as long as you have all your bases covered. Uh, that's important because we have a litigious society that we deal with. And so the first thing to happen is the service gets sued because someone got a botulism or salmonella or any other number of infections that suddenly arose from some food that was given away that they say it wasn't fresh, it wasn't this, that, and the other. And so all these high standards are being applied. The problem with the high, high standard is then you either have to operate within it, which means you have to be vigilant and move fast, or you... Uh, can't operate at all in terms of this because the litigation is going to hurt the business. And then what? What is what happens then? So uh, we see that there's some information that the Bible tells us that is indicative that the sooner that that food, which would otherwise go unused, can be applied to those who could benefit from it, who otherwise would not have access to it, that's the time to move. And, uh, and scripturally, we see examples that they did take up uh, all the leftovers from the feeding of the multitudes. It was not just tossed in the, in the waste can, it was used and prepared and it was left over. Uh, and of course the fish could be smoked or dried and the, the bread, bread has limitations too. If you look at uh, Joshua 9, one of the ways that those uh, sneaky little Gibeonites was able to create the impression they came from a long distance is that the food was moldy, it had spots on it from mold growing upon it. And uh, they offered this as, as a, um, um, to try to have a meal, uh, a, a celebration of their new covenant meal and uh, I'm sure the Israelis were kind of, oh boy, moldy, what do we do? Because <laughs> you have to cut away the mold. So, uh, I'm glad that people are actually asking these questions. If we're asking the questions, that means we're going to be striving for the answers. And so, though, I simply provided uh, kind of a, a potpourri of data here. The idea is for us to then to put our thinking caps on and work the problem. 
Roger Oliver, my dear friend down in Puebla, Mexico, the Pierre Vire Learning Center, asks, is there a biblical basis for the statute of limitations? Perhaps the validity of the evidence, the rules of due process? I vaguely recall reading something about this, but can't rightly recall. Might be an interesting question to address concerning the Kavanaugh hearings. A commentary by Michelle Malkin pointed out that the women are capable of lying, citing the case of Joseph and Potiphar's wife. The Me Too movement has a bit of this tone to it, he says. An allegation is taken seriously without considering the facts. I commented as much on the post in question. Woman one woman responded with an allegation that only 2% of these complaints are false. I didn't answer. Discretion is the better part of valor. I suspect that more of the allegations are indeed true, though the 2% figure I think would be hard to prove. Uh, actually, uh, I'm very, very busy doing a uh, large analytical work for the Journal of Christian Liberty, which is the successor to the Journal of Christian Reconstruction uh, article on abuse, and I have a lot of the data on this exact point, and the number is closer to 1% lies, 99% truth on the allegation. In fact, I have quite a few examples where the, the totals were 100% honesty. So it's not in all cases that you even have or can find a liar in the mix. So uh, that 2% number might actually be um, generous on the side of lying. Out of, uh, so that means that 98% of the time, uh, now the problem of course is that when liars catch that statistic, if liars are now known that that's the statistic, that sounds that they're saying, well, the people are going to believe me because they would figure I'm part of the 98% or the 99% and I'm not one of the 1% liars. But it's necessary for the, uh, there was a way for them to determine who was lying. And so we need to have the ability to impeach witnesses and do what's necessary to get to the truth. But uh, notice that we're using statistics to say 99%, that, that doesn't mean that someone's 98% guilty simply because we have an uh, accusation. They're either 100% guilty or they're 0% guilty. So the 98% number, how does it help us in a given case? It simply means, however, that to uh, what normally ha the fact of the matter is that this factoid, this 98% number uh, of women telling the truth, is a counterbalance to the prevailing wisdom is everyone is a Potiphar's wife. And that's the model. And so chances are maybe 1% or 2% are, have a legitimate allegation of a, a rape or a harassment. Uh, and the vast majority of them are liars. So now knowing that that's been flipped upside down, uh, we need to then be more serious about our situation because it means that that earlier myth, that false news, fake news, that the vast majority of the claims were false uh, was being used and leveraged um, politically, uh, socially, uh, in the war between the genders, it's been used. Uh, and it was wrong the whole time. So, but we don't adjudicate based on pr uh, probabilities. The fact that the case was the exact opposite simply means that we need to take seriously all challenges. Because if we are, if it's true that they're 98% are guilty, and we are maybe uh, finding only one out of a thousand guilty in court. That means the vast majority of these people are getting away with rape, literally. That means our justice system is very, very broken. Now, it's broken for a whole bunch of reasons besides that. Um, but it's definitely going to be broken for the, those who suffer these kind of abuses, especially if they are written off as, well, 98% of your claims are false. It's the other way around. But that still means that there's an opening for the, the liars to sneak in, especially for them to uh, exploit the fact that the numbers favor the fact that people would believe them. Uh, that is where the problem becomes. So we're not supposed to 
judge after the sight of our eyes or the hearing of our ears, but according to truth and justice. Now, I'm quoting from scripture there. This is what the Messiah does, right? He shall not judge after the sight of his eyes or the hearing of his ears, but in truth and righteousness doth he, doth he judge. So God's judgments are perfect, and we need to emulate those. And that takes a lot of work. If you are um, a couple of centuries removed from a theonomic uh, heritage and culture like we are, here in America, uh, that's not going to be overnight. It's not going to be a snap of the finger saying, we want to be a th theonomic, so now we are by a snap of the fingers. No, you're not. You need to get the legwork under you. It's not going that easy to overnight generate Solomons that can take a case without witnesses, like the uh, two prostitutes who disputed which one had the dead baby, and he was able to resolve the case uh, using wisdom. Right? It's the glory of the king to seek out a matter. That's what they're supposed to do, and it's tough. And we don't have anyone like this. As Rashtuni pointed out, the last king that had that kind of wisdom to crack open a case that was otherwise unsolvable was Richard III. And that's why the people brought their appeals to Richard III in England, um, because he was wise enough biblically to open up the things and act as a Solomon with the same kind of wisdom to determine and get to the truth of the matter, even if they didn't have adequate witnesses, just the way Solomon did. Without adequate witnesses, still get the case right and deliver justice. We don't deserve justice because we have um, slacked the law and we uh, are partial with respect to the law and everything that the law of God tells us, we smirk at it by and large. So we, we therefore are operating in terms of political expediency and that gets us evil. But these are very good questions. I'm not going to weigh in on the Kavanaugh case one way or the other, uh, uh, except to say that the prerequisites for getting it right don't exist in our nation. So. The man is not 98% guilty, he's 100% guilty or 0% guilty. And so the statistic is being used um, kind of as a smokescreen um, because it was used as a smokescreen before when men claimed it was the other way around. And that was not true. The truth is on the side of the ladies who said 98% of the cases where this is alleged is accurate and is honest and is truth. That is, but now we have to have justice follow through too. We then need to secure that to the satisfaction of a biblically ordained court operating according to God's law. When all that happens, boom. Uh, by the way, the question just came up. Uh, capital punishment, would be consequences for perjury if the perjured uh, testimony would have resulted in someone's death? This was the case in the apocryphal book of uh, Susanna, where Daniel, allegedly, in the story, was able to impeach the witnesses. Susanna was a godly woman, and uh, she withstood the... Um, advances that people, two men wanted to ravish her, and then they claimed that she wanted to um, have a relationship with them, right? They, they called her out to have her killed uh, as um, a fornicator. Uh, and so how, now we have two witnesses, right? These two guys say she is the bad guy, the bad girl. She needs to die. She needs to be stoned to death for the sin of, of uh, bringing folly into Israel through sinful sexuality. And Daniel says, okay, let's see. I'm going to talk to each of you individually. He takes one of the men out and says, what tree did that happen under? He says, oh, it was the whatever, oak tree over there. Okay, great, thanks. Then Daniel being lines to the other man says, oh, what tree did it happen under? He says, it was that sycamore over there. Okay, so that's where the event occurred. Yeah, that's where both, both of us were. All right, so those two died. Those two had the capital punishment inflicted upon them in the apocryphal story of Susanna because their testimony would have put her to death Therefore, because it was perjured, they both died, both witnesses died, because they colluded together to try to kill an innocent woman. So, uh, just responding to something on the fly I see in the feed. So, 
I think that'll um, cover us unless someone wants to have some follow-ups later. Uh, and now I have a final two questions. This is from uh, Mick Krug. Hope I'm spelling. If it was German, we say Krug, and if it was English, we might say Krug with a short U. And I apologize for the mispronunciation. Mick can correct me on this. <laughs> two questions for your Q and A today. First, given uh, RJ's RJR's explanation of theocracy from his book Sovereignty, could you elaborate on this a little more? And I uh, looked it up. And this is why I wanted to point out that he said that when he was uh, speaking to a group of bureaucrats, uh, that they were very polite, but they also took objection to some of his uh, statements to them about uh, their position. Uh, and he says, what I noticed is that they had a, uh, a sense of a duty uh, and mission about them, uh, a very passionate sense that they were, had a, a, were entrusted with the nations or the cities or the states uh, important things. In other words, they had a sense of a theocracy, even though it was a secular theocracy. Whatever is at the apex of value and authority in your system, that's your God, and that's the uh, uh, pinnacle of your theocracy. That's what everything drives toward. He said, so they have this notion of a, a sacred mission and a sacred trust. And uh, he said, so we, you, I, I cannot, he said, um, argue that they weren't sincere in their faith in the system. So, but they preferred to be impersonal because if it was personal, then it was all about them, but they wanted it to be about the system. And so the, the, the government, the, it had to be about policy and big things, and that's how the hand of the state operates and is heavy upon us when we do the wrong thing and how it uh, aids and abets us when we do the right thing. See, that's your God. He he's, uh, punishes and he's like the Santa Claus as required, but it's the state. He says, and Rushton, he points out, we all live under a theocracy. But it was interesting that he made this comment that they do have this sense of, uh, of a mission that is protective of the state. And we see this in this notion of the deep state and all this resistance to the current presidents uh, because they have this sense of mission in their bureaucracy that is more sacred than any individual person. And uh, so they will, in fact, protect the theocracy. Uh, and that's, that's ironic that that should be because it means that, that they're willing to do whatever it takes to, say, resist this administration. But it's part of a theocratic mindset, especially when it is secularized as it is in the modern world, where you have Machiavellian presuppositions girding and supporting and have, guiding us, which happens when you abandon God, then, of course, man is your new God. And therefore, the state is God walking on earth, the Hegelian phrase that Rishton used and Bonson used to point out where the modern God actually resides. It is our sovereign. Uh, scripturally, sovereignty is an attribute of God alone. But And Christian theocracy means that the individual man is governed by the law of God. He's governed by God. The self-government of the Christian man is the heart of all theocracy. And in actual fact, church and state are very, very small, and God is very big in a Christian theocracy. The notion that either church or state become very, very large uh, is not theocratic anymore. It's actually going to be centered on the state, uh, as we have today with secular humanism, uh, statist humanism, or you're going to be centered on the church where you get Caesar, Papism, and other um, deviations from biblical truth. Other false utopias. The utopia doesn't really exist. That's what it means. The term actually means no such place. And so, Rashtuni's uh, point there is that the keepers of these monotheocracies have a, uh, believe they have a sacred trust, and therefore if they see something attacking that sacred trust, like the current president, uh, then they're going to push back. Because <clears throat> they want to be that impersonal sea that holds back 
uh, all attempts to knock that god off its pedestal. So it's very interesting how that works out. The second question is more of a personal nature from Mick. My wife and I are members of a break-off of the Westminster OPC, which is on Millennial, with three elders leading and teaching a group of 30-plus. I have a brother in Christ, who's a son of one of the elders, who is a Reconstructionist also. We have been witnessing and arguing the scriptures for several years now with this church, pro-Reconstructionist and post-mill. We have been asked not to bring it up any longer, but still persisted doing so. Spirit doesn't seem to be enlightening these folks. My brother has blood relations there, of course, where my wife and I do not. We travel over a mountain, half hour to get to a fellowship each Wednesday and Sunday. Should my wife and I start a new church fellowship in the, uh, this Roman Catholic community? We love our brothers and sisters dearly, but disagree on many things. Thank you. Well, what's interesting is that you and your wife and your brother in Christ there, who's a Reconstructionist, that is a threefold cord, is it not? And that would not be easily broken. Now, you might have been declared to be gadflies and asked and to cool it, but you know the spirit cannot be quenched. Uh, that much is certain in Scripture. But it can also um, speak through actions louder than words. So doing things that are Reconstructionist-oriented in the Church uh, would be another way because uh, there's a case in which sometimes we see uh, deeds before thoughts. It's like the clause in... Um, John 7, um, he who does the will of my Father will know the doctrine if it's true or not. In other words, walking in obedience gives, uh, in other words, obedience preceding understanding. Sometimes if we can walk along a Reconstructionist way and guide others to, or invite others to join us on that path, then the theoretical side starts to come together and, and pull together for them. Uh, as it, as it, so in fact, this was one of the key talking points of Buddy Hansen. Uh, let me just uh, quote from him on this point because it's... Uh, interesting collection. In my talks and writing, I don't mention eschatology because I know as soon as I do, people will begin to either tune me out because my eschatology doesn't fit their imagined paradigm, or not hear what I'm saying because their mind is focused on trying to figure out how I could be so mistaken. Instead, I stress ethics. I believe if we get the ethics correct, the eschatology will take care of itself. Besides, ethics doesn't have the red flag that end times does, since many of our Christian brothers and sisters don't know what ethics means. Once I emphasize the promises that God makes and reminds them that only God's word works and man's word only fails, I place God's theological ball squarely in their court for them to either return it with their obedience or let it skip past them by ultimately saying that they trust more in their word than in his. I'm certain this causes more than a few to squirm in their seats, but I want to stress that being a Christian is much more than joining a church and being nice to people. So here he uses a tactic. He says, I'm not going to discuss eschatology. That's the red flag area. Rather, I'm going to talk about ethics, about what we do and what we should do, and then do, actually do it. And so it's in the acting that people see it. It's by one's works, good works, that the Father in Heaven is glorified. So there's a way in which you can say, okay, let's approach this differently. Uh, we have three in this church that um, want to see the whole counsel of God walked in. So you start by walking in it yourself and being an example, a light. Uh, and that cannot be hidden. Your deeds cannot be hidden. Your words can be smothered by, and ultimately even disciplinary action taken. <laughs> I mean, contumacy is that big bucket that they use to cover any rebellion against the church authorities. <clears throat> if they need it, <clears throat> it's there, handy for them. So you operate by in terms of uh, walking in the faith. And if that means promoting homeschooling, if it means uh, dealing with the poor in a biblical way, uh, examples of bringing the totality of God's word to bear in your situation, then perhaps that be 
speak louder than your words, and then your words will get weighed in, because that now is the case where if other people join you in these actions, soon as said, if they do the will of the Father in heaven, they shall understand the doctrine of his God, or godly or not. That's the promise from John 7, 17, I believe. Um, let's verify it real quick. Sometimes I don't get the addresses exactly right. Memory, I don't take in Biloba, so that's not going to help me. Yeah, it was correct. Well, how about that? I don't need to get to Ginkgo Biloba today. I'm, I'm okay. I'm free to clear that. Okay, I think that covers all the questions here. Carrie, get to have you here. Let's see. Right, Bill. Yeah, that's true. Much food is thrown away because of government bureaucratic restrictions. Let's see if we can get the rest of his question without uh, getting that thing happening. Goodness. Well, it doesn't want to. It's fighting me. open it up. He's wanting to see if it, do I want to block my brother Bill? I do not. Okay, let's go up a sec. Does this, it, it does, is the world running down by North touch on this? I haven't read that one yet. Uh, of course, uh, what Dr. North is saying is that God has certainly supplied everything that the world needs, uh, and this dovetails with what Dr. Rashtuni speaks about in the one book that has not been republished to his, The Myth of Overpopulation where he deals with the fact that North America was overpopulated when it only had about 200,000 Indians, or North Native Americans, shall we say. There are Native peoples here, using the right term. Uh, that might even be the wrong term. So, uh, insert correct term here. Those people who were here before Columbus and others showed up, uh, they were starving to death. The definition of overpopulation is that there are more people than that the land can support food-wise and otherwise. Uh, and so now, of course, America has, what, 330 million people, on the, and uh, they're eating too much. <laughs> Obesity is our problem here. Fatness, fatness is the mentioned in Scripture So, um, as a good thing, so, but, or at least a symptom of a good thing. Nonetheless, uh, yeah, there's no question that that is an interesting world because his, his point is that it's not. What happens is that uh, when uh, we, <clears throat> it's an economic reason why he wrote that book. If we have a scarcity of resources, if that's your doctrine, then of course you have the shrinking pie phenomenon, and that means you need massive socialism to solve the problem of how to cut the pie and distribute it since it's a scarce resource. Uh, and if, but rather the resources are abundant and made more abundant by covenantal faithfulness per Deuteronomy 28, then it's a different story. So the biblical notion is anathema to the other side because that, they know that if people hold to the scriptural position, then uh, their view of the scarcity of resources uh, would fall apart and their call for government control would also collapse as a result. See, we have 15 more minutes, so we're doing good on time. But yes, I would recommend that book for that position alone because it undoes that. You know, another reason that that happens is that America is, um, whenever we find, say, a large amount of oil underground, uh, the environmental faction, the Green Dragon is... Uh, some people like to call it. Uh, they they come and say we cannot disclose this fact. We must protect that area from drilling so that we don't have that oil. So though we have the oil, we don't have the oil. We have all this petroleum, but we don't have the petroleum because we're not allowed to touch it because oh then so, something bad would happen. Now what has to happen, of course, is that there must be a safe way to extract that oil and to transport the oil. If we don't have that safety, then of course those risks become real and those uh, liabilities need to be actionable in court for the damages done to whatever they might be. So all this comes into play. So it's, it's, it's always the case where we say, oh, there's massive amounts of oil here, and you say, well, we can't say that. What was it? It was in, um, 
some place like Yosemite or Sequoia, where they discovered one of the world's largest um, um, ore deposits of chromite, which is used in making aircraft uh, quality steel. You need chromite. But the uh, ore, the assay results from those mines were doctored and hidden by the government to say there's no chromite there to protect the forest. In turn, we became dependent on Russia for our chromite because that was the only other place we could get it from. So even though we had the world's largest deposit of chromite, we won't touch it because of where it's located. Uh, so these are the foibles of uh, statism when it tries to balance all these conflicting ideas and when the state believes that it knows better than you and therefore becomes true big brother and say we're going to be a big brother for this forest here and uh, instead of saying well why don't we come up with an interesting way of uh, extracting chromite without hurting anything you know who says it has to be strip mining why can't we have a low impact on the environment situation or it doesn't scare everything away that might be living in a old growth forest what have you uh, this brings Back all sorts. Calvin Beisner, Dr. Calvin Beisner, he uh, has the from the um, get the, the name in my head here real quick. Cor Cornwall Alliance for Stewardship of Creation, which is a Christian response to the environmentalists. He also has an interesting book where a garden meets wilderness. It's out of print. I think he's, he's been trying to reprint it. I've offered for Calcedon to re, uh, potentially reprint it. Kyle's listening, so perhaps Four Falls Press might end up reprinting it if uh, Calvin can't get uh, funding together on that project, but it's a very, very important book. It shows that there's a Christian alternative to proper stewardship of the creation, uh, and it doesn't fall into all the traps that the humanistic approach to ecology and environmentalism uh, and essentially gay worship uh, at heart uh, fall into. So there's a Christian alternative that does deal properly with the uh, nature of the creation that God has bequeathed to us and for its right use. Um, and, and all that to say, uh, if you put, I think it's cornwallalliance.org, you might be able to, um, ground control might be able to find that link and point us to it. Earbuds is a good way to go, listening. Oh, there it is. I've got all of Bill Evans' quote now. Much food is thrown away because of government bureaucratic restrictions, an area in which civil government has no authority. Restaurants refuse to give. And let me see the rest of it. <laughs> yeah. Why is it that it won't let me open up these things? It used to. Well, I'm going to have a problem seeing anything more than a certain amount of questions. What's the difference between historic post-mill and preterist post-mill? Well, historically, and of course a preterist post-mill can push back on this because the fact of the matter is preterism has been an option for a very long time among post-millennialists. So uh, if you want to talk about historic post-mill, you could say that uh, the, the dominant theme there was the historicist, that the Book of Revelation, in fact, took us sequentially through time, by and large, from beginning to end. Uh, and that would be the historicist position. Um, Francis Nigel Lee would probably be the strongest, uh, the late Dr. Lee, strongest exponent of that position. Uh, and uh, it's a fascinating way to go. Uh, the other approach that will also be historical, because it goes back a ways, would be the idealist position, that in fact the, um, the visions are not chronological. They're actually... Uh, seven consecutive visions, each of which cover the same ground between the advents, the inter-advent explanation, if you will. 
So historicism and idealism both say between Revelation 1 to 19, or maybe even more, we're talking about the spacing between the advents. Then it gets a little dicier in terms of the 20th chapter. And what the preterist says is that the entirety of the book is not covering the space between the advents, but rather the uh, final death throes of Israel and the divorce of Israel and its destruction for having murdered its Messiah. Uh, and so the whole thing is seen as uh, happening the last three and a half years, including in 70 AD, with the final destruction of the temple and God's wrath being poured out on the, uh, that. So instead of land being taken as world, we land of Israel. Um, and that would be certainly a, one legitimate way to take the passage. I am a sympathetic critic of po preteristic postmillennialism. And when uh, Dr. Gentry and I had a little back and friendly back and forth in around 1989, we came to the conclusion, it might have been 1987, uh, that he and I were both postmill first, and he would be preterist second, and I would be idealist second. So to us, the postmillennial position at the victory of the church and the uh, completing of the Great Commission was the more important element than whether the Book of Revelation was to be fit in three and a half years in the past, three and a half years in the future. <laughs> Finally, we could, from a futurist, which is not postmodern at all, or does it fill the two advents with historicists and the um, idealists like Rushduni, Moorfield, Hanks, and Burgar? So that would probably be the quickest, uh, short explanation of that. It's a pinned thing here. Follow-up to Roger's question. Thank you, Ground Control. Don't you think that today's standards about accusations and evidence are clearly not biblical, and thus these standards are being put forth that reflects ignorance of God's law? Well, that's for a certainty across the board. Uh, you're not even allowed to. It's a miracle that they swear oath on the Bible nowadays, for that matter. <laughs> In fact, nowadays, how much they don't, you know. Do you, they just say, I do. The truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help you God. But is your hand on the Bible? Usually not. This should point to learning the law of God. Yes, and what about Jesus' words, let him lose without sin, cast the first stone? Well, that position, th th that phrase is uh, out of John 8, is probably not applicable here to this situation. If the requirement was that only people who uh, um, have committed no sins can judge a, um, be, sit on a jury, then of course we have no juries, we have no judges. Uh, we only have the capital J judge uh, at the end of time. But rather, we're required to judge righteous judgment. And uh, moreover, uh, Paul calls into question, he says, why is it that you don't have Christians capable of adjudicating between one another? Why are you going to secular courts where God's law is not being applied? Uh, and, and the early church took Paul's warning seriously. So he says, set up Christian courts. We need to do the same thing here. There's been a lot of talk about it. We've talked about it. Uh, that talk needs to translate to action. And uh, I think there are indications that this is going to happen, that uh, perhaps a new Christian law school will come into play where we'll be able to prepare Christians for this kind of thing. Uh, that's under wraps at the moment, but we shall see what comes of it. But uh, what is occurring here in that particular case in John 8, I think uh, Rashtuni and Bonson and other scholars are correct in this, that the clean hands doctrine was being applied. You could not be a witness in a case in which you had um, uh, direct um, involvement. In other words, uh, if you were an accessory to that cr specific crime, you had, did not have clean hands. Um, you were uh, having unclean hands, you could not, you were invalidated as a witness uh, because you had unclean hands in that matter, that specific matter you're adjudicating. And so it, we had a 
paraphrase Jesus, he was without sins in this specific matter we're adjudicating. In other words, in this case for this woman, who had nothing to do with how that got set up and how this uh, testimony came to be revealed to us here today, they can cast the first stones. Remember, the, the eyewitnesses had to be the first to cast the stones, but they had to have clean hands. Um, there's a, a phrase in the Old Testament, and uh, Bonson and others have gone back and forth about a proper translation interpretation of it, but it is indicative of uh, the way he took it, and I believe is correct, that uh, if you did not, uh, if you uh, had involvement in the thing that you're adjudicating, you're disqualified as a witness. And so essentially the witnesses had to disqualify. They either were not eyewitnesses or they were eyewitnesses, but they had involvement in setting up the adultery in the first place because it was a test case that they put together. And therefore, they did not have clean hands. They helped contrive and put that uh, trap together for Christ. Let's see here. Well, nothing else is coming. I say, do I hit the finish button? Because I'm certainly not finished with this thing. Five minutes to go. Well, and now I'm, my feet is stuck, which is not good. Or the, or the pin, maybe you've unpinned. Oh, there it goes. Okay, thank you, ground control. It pinned and nothing would move because something was pinned. Okay, yes. Ask questions. Ask.calcedon.calcedon.edu. Send those questions. Um, Book of the Month Club coming up in October. You're going to want to hear what uh, Peter Ellison has to say about uh, intellectual schizophrenia when he and Andrea Schwartz go through that. Uh, very, very important book. One of the, sec the second book that Rashtuni ever uh, wrote and considered perhaps the book that launched the uh, revolution in at least among Protestants and evangelicals in respect to um, schooling, Christian schooling and homeschooling in particular. So uh, that's going to be a fascinating uh, Book of the Month Club. If you're not already signed up for it, do so. Uh, the one from, we always have the recordings available on uh, at the calcedon.edu website. If there's a book that you're wondering, well, what's that book about? Go ahead and pull it. They last 45 minutes to an hour. Um, and go ahead and uh, listen in to what the Book of the Month Club people had to say because you get to hear the uh, the host and uh, individuals ask questions, talk about it, share about the book, and you can get a feel for it. Is that the book for me or is it uh, not what I'm interested in right at the moment? But they're always good discussions and highly valuable in my opinion. Yeah, there is no Q&A on August, October 7th. I will be in Pennsylvania being one of the uh, two plenary session speakers at the Future Christendom Conference uh, in Reading uh, for the Mid-Atlantic Reformation Society. So we'll be here next week, but we will not be here the week after. So with that said, thank you for all your questions. Again, send them in advance. We'll take those first, and then we'll go ahead and uh, speak to uh, live questions as they come. If no one sends anything in advance, then of course we'll have nothing but live questions, uh, which is kind of how we started life out with these Q&As. But it's always a pleasure to have you, to have the group here, and uh, we appreciate all your support. Again, what we do at Calcedon is based on your willingness to support us in the effort of expanding the reach of the whole Council of God. Thank you. We'll see you all next week. God bless you all. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Meat of the Word Q&A with Martin Selbretti. We pray that you have been edified by the content that you've heard on this episode. Please visit calcedon.edu for some great resources and reconstructionistradio.com to download your favorite audiobooks. Until next time, may the Lord richly bless you in all that you do.